Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI. Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle, Washington's KODX. KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California. KKRN in Round Mountain, California. And Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Brad blog.com but Brad and Desi both have time off. You have me, Angie Coiro, sitting in. I'm the host of In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of the same stations and streams. Speaking of, not long ago, Indie posted Sally Cohn before a live audience. You might have heard of her book, The Opposite of Hate. She took off from the polarity of America and talked with people who've moved on from truly grisly hate-fueled events. I mean stuff that puts our left-right divide way back on the scale. The Israeli-Palestinian battle, even the Rwandan genocide. I've got it on my mind today because there's so much of the political divide in today's news. So we're going to blend those two this hour and see what comes out. And you'll hear bits of that interview toward the end of the hour. First up, though, AT&T is eating public crow over its connection to Michael Cohen. This week, AT&T and pharma giant Novartis and Korea Aerospace Industries were revealed to have paid Michael Cohen's shell company money. That's the same barely removed from Trump consulting company that paid off Stormy Daniels. As is always the case when a business or political concern voices a mea culpa, it is not clear which is true. AT&T either regrets associating with Cohen or it's sorry that daylight fell on that association. Maybe both. At any rate, at least one guy has been sacrificed. A senior vice president was axed. Pardon me, he retired. Again, what is stated and what's true could be a little bit wobbly there. I'll tell you what is clear. AT&T has cut Cohen loose as brutally as Atlanta shunned Scarlett O'Hara. Check out the language in the inside memo that went public. There is no other way to say it. AT&T hiring Michael Cohen as a political consultant was a big mistake. Our past association with Cohen was a serious misjudgment. Our Washington, D.C. team's vetting process clearly failed. In case that doesn't make the cut bloody enough, there is this. Referring to the guy taking over for the retiree, quote, David's number one priority is to ensure every one of the individuals and firms we use in the political arena are people who share our high standards and who we would be proud to have associated with with AT&T. A test Michael Cohen has failed spectacularly, apparently. There's one more line in that memo. To be clear, everything we did was done according to the law and entirely legitimate. Did anyone break the letter of the law here? There are two good pieces to go to for thorough analysis of that. The Washington Post reviews the whole Cohen pay-for-play timeline and Robert Mueller's scrutiny of the activities, some key points, quoting from the article. 
Perhaps Essential Consultants' most notable contract was with Columbus Nova, a New York-based investment firm that said it paid Cohen $500,000 between January and August 2017. In a statement, Columbus Nova said it is owned and managed by Americans, but acknowledged that it manages assets for a company controlled by the Russian billionaire, Victor Vexelberg. So if Cohen's multiple allegations of ties to Russia are irrefutably confirmed and can be shown to have enabled international interference in our government, I am going to guess hard legal charges could result. Then there's this. Quoting again from the article, selling access is common in Washington, but investigators could probe whether Cohen promised specific government actions in exchange for payments, which would cause him legal trouble if he spent large amounts of time speaking to government officials on behalf of clients, investigators could explore whether he should have registered as a lobbyist. They could also probe whether he made misstatements on bank records associated with his consulting company. The second analysis I recommend is at Vox.com today. It looks specifically at the business dealings and speculates there may in fact have been no laws broken. Most salient is the point that full details aren't in on yet. What exactly was Michael Cohen paid for? That article says in Washington, it's relatively commonplace for companies and others to pay lobbyists and advisors to help them advance their causes and gain influence among lawmakers and policymakers. Okay, that's lobbying. We knew that. Corporations spend billions of dollars on lobbying each year. Whether what Cohen did is legal will depend on the exact nature of his work and the details that are still to come. Now, here's the payoff, if you will pardon the pun. It breaks down the specifics of what it is that would cross the line, and that includes very easy-to-fudge elements. Whether Cohen was paid to set up meetings, what percentage of his time he spent on work that clearly meets the definition of lobbying. What percentage? We're talking very specific numbers. If it was 20% or more of the time, he was supposed to have registered as a lobbyist. If it was 19.99% of the time, presumably he is in the clear. So that comes down to his records and how specific would his records be? Could they be relied upon to be accurate? And I'm not even saying that he had to deliberately keep a bad set of records. How, how many of us claim that we used a five-foot stretch of our living room for business purposes only. And coincidentally, the we and the TV are right there. One last bit from Emily Stewart in Vox. That doesn't mean what happened is par for the course. In fact, the experts I spoke with, she said, said it's pretty unprecedented. Quote, the idea of having money funneled through the president's personal lawyer into a shell company, I don't think that happens very often. Robert Weissman, president of the watchdog group Public Citizen, told me. That's the last of the article. And, of course, all that describes is that the bottom has dropped further. The bottom keeps dropping. I don't think we found it yet. I don't think we found the real bottom. This entire mess has been brought to you by Citizens United, turning America over to the haves since 2010. Thank you, Citizens United. Another stain on the White House is the chirpy punchline uttered by White House aide Kelly Sadler, that John McCain's opposition to Gina Haspel was a non-issue because, her words, he's dying anyway. 
A White House aide tried to jump ahead of the fallout. We respect Senator McCain's service to our nation, and he and his family are in our prayers during this difficult time. At last report, Sadler still had a job. The Hill reports that she placed a call to Meghan McCain to apologize. Contents of the call on either side not available. But this is from the White House of Donald Trump, who hesitated not at all on the campaign trail to slamming McCain's having been a prisoner of war. Remember? Captain Bonespur smirked. He's not a war hero. He was a war hero because he was captured. I like people who weren't captured. Another charmer, this one this week from Fox News, peddling the discredited line that torture works to provide true confessions. It does not produce true confessions. Air Force Lieutenant General Thomas McInerney, retired, bemoaned the fact that Gina Haspel wouldn't be allowed to use torture. Why? He said, well, she couldn't use it anymore because we have determined in Congress that it's not legal. The fact is, John McCain, it worked on John. That's why they call him Songbird John. Okay, no, it didn't. There's not one shred of documentation that John McCain gave up any information while tortured in a Hanoi prison with a broken leg and a shattered shoulder. None. But that lie gave McInerney the false basis to build on. He said, the fact is those methods can work and they are effective, as former Vice President Cheney said, and if we have to use them to save a million American lives, we will do whatever we have to. It is very tempting to lay this entirely at the feet of Donald Trump and the scum that he deposits everywhere he walks, like the racism he cultivates and exploits that traces back to Lee Atwater's Southern strategy. I know you've heard of it. The philosophy was widely publicized, but Atwater's actual words weren't widely heard until The Nation magazine published them in 2012. It's one thing to read those words. It is quite another to hear them. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a, as a statistician or a political scientist. No, as a psychologist, which I'm not, is, is how abstract you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out, and you know, now y'all aren't quoting me. I don't know. You start out in 1954 by saying, nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire, so you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than white. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that, we're, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing, uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than you know. So that is the codified base, the template for the Fox opinionator. You don't say what you really mean. In his case, let's play the fear card to get Haspel in while I curry favor with Trump and fulfill the mandate of Fox News by lying about actual facts. No, you lie about your discourse. You count on the effect, not transparency. And when you break it down, it's us versus them. But it's prettified for maximum deniability. 
put the berating of John McCain this week into more historical context. Democratic Senator Max Cleland served in Vietnam, too. He won the Silver Star and the Bronze Star for valor in service to his country. He had both legs blown off along with most of an arm by a grenade that he picked up, not knowing it was set improperly. So in 2002, when he was running for re-election to his Senate seat, you'd think no one would question his patriotism, of all things. Maybe his voting record. I mean, he's a Georgia senator. He was pro-choice. He voted against oil drilling in Alaska. There's a lot of fodder there for attack from the right. But his opponent, Saxby Chambliss, instead ran a TV commercial that showed a series of faces. Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, and Max Cleland. The grim voiceover said, As Americans face terrorists and extremist dictators, Max Cleland runs television ads saying he has the courage to lead. Then it tallies the ways that Max Cleland, now apparently a traitor, didn't fall in line with President Bush, who was of course standing between us and post-9-11 destruction. Unbelievably, that ad turned the race around. Saxby Chambliss took over that Senate seat and has been in Republican hands ever since. And you know what? Like Donald Trump, Chambliss never served a day in the military. He got student deferments and then a medical pass because he injured his knee playing football. Echoes of President Bonespur. Two years later, Ann Coulter chimed in, spurning Cleland's service by, bizarrely, tying his loss of limbs to the fact, fact that he was on his way to have a beer when he picked up the grenade that exploded. And Coulter, of course, has never served in the military either. You know who did stand up for Max Cleland in 2002? John McCain. When the ad came out, John McCain had that very rare perspective of a politician who was also a war veteran, a war veteran who had been tortured, a war veteran who suffered very personal loss. McCain decried the commercial. He said he'd never seen anything like it It was worse than disgraceful. It was reprehensible. What it was, what Trump is, what Fox is, what the comment from White House Kelly Sadler is, is a continuation of the moral decline of the Republican Party. Because it works. Racism works. Painting war heroes as weak, selfish failures worthy of mockery works. And the few remaining Republicans of decency and honesty, and they do exist, are fleeing the party they once knew. But we won't see a real change until this kind of, dare I say it, unpatriotic rhetoric stops working. No clue if it will. More Around the Quarter. I'm Angie Corro. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero. More news of the world. Candidate Donald Trump promised the U.S. government would go toe-to-toe with pharmaceutical companies negotiating lower medication rates. That was candidate Donald Trump. That was then. This is now. Today's Donald Trump announced he would, quote, derail special interest gravy trains. The New York Times breaks it down like this. In his announcement, quote, Mr. Trump's blueprint to lower drug prices has four main themes. Increasing competition in drug markets. Giving private plans more tools to negotiate discounts for Medicare beneficiaries. Providing new incentives for drug manufacturers to reduce list prices. Yeah, that's always worked. And cutting consumers' out-of-pocket costs. You know what that leaves out? What he promised as a candidate the government negotiating with companies. That kind of disappeared from the equation. It's kind of funny that comes out the same week as the Novartis news. He did, pro forma, take time to prop up the cardboard enemies he stokes his base with, President Barack Obama and other countries. For Obama, it was, government has always been part of the problem because previous leaders turned a blind eye to this incredible abuse. But under this administration, we are putting American patients first. For the America Firsters, it was, it's time to end the global freeloading once and for all. On the topic of health care, there's this battle in the state of Louisiana. The budget crunch there is so bad that potential funding cuts in Medicaid led to eviction notices going out to nursing home residents, people who live in nursing homes because of age, disability, or both, have been alerted by the state They need to lay in alternative plans. What alternative plans for most of them? Now, depending on who you talk to, this is either a sick power play by the governor to get what the Democrats want, or it's fair and decent notice to people who deserve at least that if their beds and the roofs over their heads are going to be taken away. Now, here's that case. It was made by Administrative Commissioner Jay Darden. Um, and I recognize that the, the difficulty that this is imposing upon recipients, we understand that. We don't want to have to be doing this, obviously, and we've waited as long as we possibly could to do this. But because the rulemaking process has begun and emergency rules are in place, and because inquiries are going to begin to be made of individuals as to what other eligibility they may have, we feel that it's appropriate and necessary to forewarn these recipients of what may be coming. And you'll see when you read the one-page notice that there's no politics involved in it. It's not saying call your legislator. It's saying call the Department of Health and let us help you. And it's advising them of what may take place as we barrel toward the cliff. And it's our sincere hope, as all of you know, that uh, the cliff is going to be resolved in a way that is responsible and that raises the revenue necessary to not have to impose these terrible cuts on the people of Louisiana. Republicans are calling that fear-mongering. All right, he said, she said, but this is so much bigger than whether it's a legit mail to have sent. It's an indictment of a system in which health care, from prenatal to end of life, is painted as disposable, or an entitlement, or a political trading card. When you think about it, so is what Trump said today, especially in light of comparable pharmaceutical prices in other countries, the ones he was busy knocking. Turning the page, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly says the administration's opposition to people who moved here illegally isn't that they're all criminals, which even the shortest memory will tell you contrasts with his boss's opinion. 
He went on to tell Morning Edition they're not people that would easily assimilate into the United States, into our modern society. They're overwhelmingly rural people. In the countries they come from, fourth, fifth, sixth grade educations are kind of the norm. They don't speak English. Obviously, that's a big thing. They don't integrate well. They don't have skills. They don't have skills. Some of America's best craftsmen are waiting in the Home Depot parking lot, hoping to get picked up for daily construction work. These people are taking work away from Americans, don't you know? Meanwhile, Orrin Hatch is busy pushing legislation to more than double the number of H-1B visas. You can't have it both ways. Okay, they're consistent in the stated desire for educated immigrants, but you can't say that one is stealing American jobs and the other one isn't. Maybe, just maybe, it's possible they both have a critical role in our economy and should be treated accordingly. Hey, do you have an Echo in your house? The Amazon smart device, not the oral phenomenon. Do you use Siri or Google's Assistant? What is the price you are paying for your convenience? I'm going to scare you. Published in the New York Times, some research from China and the U.S. over the past two years, they've begun demonstrating they can send hidden commands undetectable to the human ear to Siri, Alexa, and Google's Assistant. Inside University Labs, a report said the researchers have been able to secretly activate the artificial intelligence systems on smartphones and smart speakers, making them dial phone numbers or open websites. In the wrong hands, the technology could be used to unlock doors, wire money, or buy stuff online, simply with music playing over the radio. Not done. A group of students from UC Berkeley and Georgetown University showed in 2016 they could hide commands in white noise played over loudspeakers and through YouTube videos to get smart devices to turn on an airplane mode or open a website. Now the Berkeley researchers said they could embed commands directly into recordings of music or spoken text. So while a human listener hears someone talking or an orchestra playing, the Echo speaker might hear an instruction to add something to your shopping list. You can go check out the rest in the New York Times. I had to stop reading right there. Yes, I have one in my house. That was not my decision. You know, the tales of disillusioned middle America Trump voters never go away. NBC visited Renee Elliott in Indiana back in January. And that Trump voter had lost her job at Carrier, one of the very places Trump campaigned. I feel forgotten. And not just myself, a lot of others, too. I felt like he was going to protect our jobs, you know what I mean? And we all voted for him. And then, boom. I feel betrayed. I can guarantee you I'll never, ever, ever work at a place like that again, around the type of people, and, um, you know, never, never again. I can guarantee you that will not happen. Anybody from Carrier? Uh, we love you. Do you like Trump? Him speaking as much as he did about Carrier and saying the things he said, which you didn't know your president say. Stick with me, fellas. I went in the rain and voted for him. Yes, I did. Yeah, I was, I was hopeful. You know, he spoke with anger and passion and, and like he understood. This week covering the Indiana election, CNN chimed in, and they went to talk to Elliot, too. And then they added this from another disappointed fan, a Donnie fan, Beth Henderson. 
You know, we're involved in an agriculture business, huh. and um, so yeah, tariffs is a big deal. It's much more than policy. I don't like his outbursts and his inappropriateness with the public and his scruples. What scruples mean? His values and how he's so blasé about, you know, some of his behaviors and it just doesn't bother him. You'd have to turn off your humanity not to feel some pain for these people. They're struggling, they're unemployed, they're broke. But all the signs were there on the trail. What Trump was, who he is, what would happen under him, and what all that said about the party who was touting him. And some of the people profiled in these nonstop, disappointed Trump voter stories are voting Republican again. I just think it's time again for, for you know, get someone else in there, new blood. That is the Gulf. That is the big American breach. Coming up, some wisdom gathered by author and political commentator Sally Cohn on crossing divides. I'm Angie Coyro. This is the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I think it's so groovy now that people are finally getting together. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero. Not long ago, for my own show, Indeed, I interviewed Sally Cohn. You might know her from Fox News or CNN. And she was touring with her book about the opposite of hate. Not just about it, that's the title, The Opposite of Hate. And the book brought some serious controversy that I do want to acknowledge. Two black women writers were depicted in ways that they said they had not been consulted on and were not appropriate. And in the live event, we did address that. If you, if you want to hear that whole explanation, that's online as part of the show, indeepradio.com. In these experts, this is Sally expanding on the human story she encountered. Extreme, extreme examples of what people can do to each other and what they can overcome to make peace with and even enjoy life with their enemies. You said people like conservative talk show host Sean Hannity in real life did not have horns and fangs, but were actually pretty nice, certainly way nicer than I expected. And the phrase that came into my head was from the producers, Mel Brooks, the Fuhrer was a terrific dancer. <laughs> I saw your TED Talk where you started out saying you've always had this reputation for being a really nice person. Putting those two thoughts together, I thought maybe that feeds right into the themes we're talking about tonight, where you looked and found what was nice about him. So the overall takeaway I want people to take away, <laughs> we, I think intellectually a lot of us, and certainly a lot of us who consider ourselves to be progressive or left of center, tend to aspirationally believe that people are mostly good most people are mostly good, right? We believe that in theory, not so much in practice, right? 
And the same, of course, is also true, the inverse. I'm not saying that Sean Hannity's views are nice, but it's worth noting and worth understanding that people are not just one thing. No one is just their one position on something or just who they voted for in 2016 or just who they voted for in 2008. So there's a moral component to that, right? The moral component to that is, is best summed up in what Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy and who uh, is an anti-death penalty activist and lawyer, one of his sayings is, no one is the worst thing they've ever done in life. Now, that's a moral concept, right? And for me, there's a piece, the, half the book is sort of, it's very moral. Like, if you believe in the equal dignity and humanity of all people, and the question is, do you believe in the equal dignity and humanity of all people, including people who deny your humanity? That's the moral question here. And the, the sort of practical question is, do you actually believe people can change? And one of the things I did in the book is, look, I spend time with ex-neo-Nazis and ex-terrorists and also mine my own history and experiences and learning, as well as our history as a country. And the fact is that people can change. The only reason I work to make change is because I believe people can change. Mm -hmm. I believe policies and institutions and systems and culture and people can change. So there's the moral dimension. There's also this pragmatic dimension, which is, do we want people we disagree with and who we think are doing hateful things in the world, do we want them to stay that way forever? Is that really what we want? And yelling at people, hating people, attacking people, never made anyone change, right? But I will also say this. Does anyone remember in 2012, after the 2012 election, when Sean Hannity came out and said that he supported a path to citizenship? As part of comprehensive immigration reform, he, on his show, went out and said, I support a path to citizenship. These are hardworking people. They're part of this country. They, they should be able to stay here. Now, I will tell you right now, I would give my left arm for him to continue to stick to that position and fight for that position. And it would make more of a difference than possibly anything I could ever say or do. So again, do we want to condemn people to be our worst ideas of them and the worst things they've ever said or done or thought? Mm -hmm create the possibility for change. Let's talk about the persuadability of people. And I want to commend you for putting a lot of science into this. There were a lot of parts of the book that reminded me of, and I can recommend this to you who haven't read it, 2012, Chris Mooney's The Republican Brain. Oh, thank you. That's all important. I want to talk about the concept of persuadability. Hmm. You outline any number of cases where people with very hard lines in their life, hardline white supremacist, people in the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, and they have come to see things differently. Do you have faith that the majority of people do in fact have that capacity, the capacity to change? Yes. I mean, here's the thing to recognize, right? So one of the places I went to for the book was Rwanda because, you know, look, I don't think all kinds of hate are the same. Bullying and being mean to people online is not the same thing as terrorism and genocide. They are obviously not the same. I think they have the same root. They have the same origin, which is our history and habit of demeaning and dehumanizing certain people, and especially certain groups of people, because of their identities or their ideas. So but when you think about extremities of hate, the most extreme of the extreme, genocide is one of the most endemically hateful things we can do as a people. So, and I've read about Rwanda, 
you know, I thought I understood you read it. I didn't realize. So the first thing I, when I actually went was, and there are, by the way, a country that has, they have not buried and sort of tried to push aside that brutal history. They are very, unlike our country where we have not reckoned with it, we don't talk about it, we don't, right? They are upfront, right? They have memorials that are quite vivid and painfully visceral. And I had heard about, you know, people, it is the fastest genocide in world history, 800,000 people killed in 100 days, not just by arms of the state, but by ordinary people who, as I had read, killed their friends and family members and neighbors. And I thought, oh, like in the sense of you and I met once, that kind, no, this is like they killed their godchildren. They killed the people they had Sunday supper with. They killed their stepbrother. And horribly so. And horribly so. And so on the one hand, to, to reckon with the fact that we as a species can do that, that we are capable of that extreme violent hate. And to be clear, one of the most poignant things someone in the book said to me is a philosopher who said, look, we don't have mass atrocities because of a handful of psychopaths. There weren't enough psychopaths in Rwanda or Germany or Serbia. It's not. We have mass atrocities because masses of people participate in them. And as much as we like to cognitively or politically write people off as other and different, and right? Th those, are, those are ordinary people. They are ordinary people who did extraordinarily hateful and heinous things because of the context, the environment, the history of hate, the manipulation of hate by media and politicians, etc. So there's that piece, right? We all, we all are capable of that. We all are capable of that. And then at the same time, to go to Rwanda and sit in the home of a woman who had invited into her home her neighbor, who she calls her friend, who murdered her husband and her children and watch her laugh with him and serve him tea and sit beside him. And we are also that too, as a, as a species, as people, we are also capable of that kind of compassion, kindness, even forgiveness. By the way, I'm not sure I personally am capable of that, right? I really, I was like, no, I don't think I, I couldn't, I, it took my breath away, and I, and I still, I don't know, uh, and I wrestle with it in the book. But the, the, the lesson to be learned is that we as people, we as human beings, are capable of both. We are all capable of hate. We are all capable of its opposite, mm -hmm. all of us. There's someone you have conversations with that you track through the book. Scotty. Scotty yes. now. Scotty now. My my good friend who I dearly love and have spent some and have spent a lot of quality time with anyway. You were asking a question. Go ahead. Sorry. You've been talking to Scotty, who sees things very differently than you do. And when you were talking about believing that you, in fact, as just a human being, were capable of atrocity, you were you could have bias, you are a racist, and she couldn't buy it. And you have these repeated conversations with her, and you got to a certain point. You said that one thing you admire about her is her honesty. She had said that during another of our conversations, she goes off on Chicago's black community for tolerating poverty and drug use and violence. What makes you think, you asked, 
they tolerate any of that because they haven't solved it, she retorts. Her implication is the black community caused the problem. It's their problem to solve, too. I asked Scotty Nell if she thinks joblessness and drug abuse in the rural white Rust Belt is white people's fault. She gets defensive and insists that's different. I, I see the value in trying to build bridges and trying to persuade and trying to make peace, you know, if not love and joy, at least peace. But when we got to that, I wrote down she's biased, she's in denial, she's defensive, she's unpersuadable. So at what point do you decide, with my limited time and energy in life, do I want to persuade the Scotties of the world or I just want to make sure that fewer of them get to the voting booth than me and the people who think, I think. So here's the thing. Scotty knows a friend. And part of what I at least took away, which is interesting, she just said she's, I don't know what you wrote, but she's defensive, she's this, she's that, she's that. And I was like, sounds like, right, sounds like most white liberals I know too. I mean, <laughs> let's be clear, right? And one of the things I talk about is like a lot of the things, maybe Scotty, you know, hasn't like figured out, you know, to not say this or to say that or whatever, right? And sometimes really does step in it. And maybe sometimes we could ascribe, but I will tell you this much. She doesn't mean to be hateful. I will, by the way, tell you most people don't mean to be hateful. Most people do not wake up thinking, you know what, I'm going to be hateful. Most people, when they do hateful things, don't tend to be hateful. Most people don't mean to be hateful. And I will tell you that a lot of the things she said, I have heard or thought versions myself and certainly heard from other white liberals. So like when she, in the book, when she talks about uh, resenting that in college, she didn't get a scholarship, but her black roommate did get a scholarship, and that that wasn't fair because then Scotty now still had to work her way through college and whatever. First of all, when I said, hey, if your roommate had been white and gotten a scholarship, would you have been resentful? To her credit, she said, good point. Probably not. One of my political mentors and teachers was a woman named Jean Hardesty. Before there was an internet, you know, there would these, be these right-wing gatherings and conferences and conventions, and she would infiltrate them. And she was a political scientist slash sort of uh, anthropologist, political anthropologist. She would infiltrate them and study what was going on in the right at its sort of pre-rise before it took real power. She, by the way, wrote a book, which I think still holds up very well, called Mobilizing Resentment, which is worth reading, about sort of the history of how we got to this moment. And, and just the title in and of itself is Mobilizing Resentment. Let's come back to that. So Jean says, separate the leaders from the followers, right? You want to blame attack, hold accountable the leaders, but don't ascribe the same malice, intent, deliberateness to the followers. Now, for instance, in the book, I talk about dog whistle racism, right? So modern American politics for the last 50, 60 years, perpetrated to an extent by both parties. Bill Clinton was pretty committed to mobilizing racial resentment among white voters to turn out votes. But by and large, an invention and investment by the Republican Party, and not like a subtle one, right? So the idea of dog whistle politics or dog whistle racism is you blow the whistle and only some people can hear it, right? And you have enough plausible deniability. No, 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 didn't say that wasn't racist because, you know, it's just, right, you're just shading the... And this isn't, by the way, like a conspiracy theory. Nixon was very clear. He's like, well, you can't say blankety blank and blank, but you say law and order and they know what you mean, right? Reagan said, we talk about welfare queens, never actually said the race of the welfare queens, but they lived in the south side of Chicago and 
right? We infer it. And it was that they were getting things that hardworking people weren't deserving. And that was the, right? By the way, Donald Trump, he like traded a whistle for a blow horn and he just went, <laughs> right? So whether it's that or we could sort of unpack other dimensions of this, I can't, as an activist, as a political strategist, as an observer, a movement, right? I can't say on the one hand, hey, the Republican Party has been doing this for 50, 60 years, stoking fear, racial resentment, and hate as a deliberate strategy for 50, 60 years. I can't say that and say these voters are inherently racist. That's just who they are. That's just, right? I have to recognize that if I am critiquing certain structures and arrangements and choices in politics and by political leaders, by the way, we could also talk about the media, right, here too, then I have to understand that the consequences I predicted would happen have in fact happened. And then treat with grace the people who have been the victims of those consequences, right? There was a concerted effort by the political elite to move the needle on global warming. You can't, right? And it worked, because we said it was gonna happen, and look, it happened, and you can't then just be like, those people are stupid that they don't, right? Like, we said this would happen, and it did. Some of us hold both those thoughts in our minds. I just, but I think I find them inherently <laughs> contradictory. I find them inherently contradictory. Also, right, so there's that piece. There's also the pragmatic piece, which is, I will tell you, as someone who is invested in people changing, I don't wanna leave people where they are, this is the organizer. You meet people where they're at, but you don't leave them where they are, right? I have never seen anyone change, let alone whole swaths of people change, because the other side treated them as stupid or hateful, right? There was literally never in the history of the world have I heard an example where someone on the other side of the aisle, or the other side of the issue, or the other side of the identity, or whatever, said, you know, those Democrats, they treat me like shit, and they think I'm stupid, they call me deplorable, I'm gonna give their ideas a chance. I'm gonna go listen to them. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> right? In fact, when we are attacked and demeaned, whatever, you know, we dig in our heels. We know this from neuroscience as well. We dig in our heels. It makes change less possible. Mm -hmm. So pragmatically, right? Morally, I do not think, I think we have to look at structures that put people in the mindsets that they now are in. And also pragmatically, I don't wanna leave them there. Let's get to the guts of how you find it possible to talk to people. You have an ABC progression. Sure. ABC. What's that? So what we know from neuroscience is that when people perceive an argument, their persuasion parts, the rational thinking, the reasoning parts of the brain shut down and the fight or flight mechanism turns on. And that means you're going to pick a side. And if we were having an argument, you're going to pick your own side, not mine side, because that's why we were having the argument in the first place. Right. So that's not constructive. If your goal was to have an argument and get into a shouting match, that, I've just given you the formula, that's the way you do it. Someone says something, you attack them, you yell at them, you and that's, you're gonna end up in a shouting match, right? Online or off, works that way. As an alternative, by the way, one alternative is to back away. If it's online, it's offline, it's to be like, you know what, not gonna do this, right? If it's a person you love, say, I, no, right? To preserve your own sense of sanity and or safety, it is okay to not engage, I just wanna, Give everyone permission, you cannot engage. Option two is of course to respond to hate with hate. I generally am against that because I do not think the answer to hate is more hate. I do not think the answer to injustice is more injustice. I do not think the answer to cruelty is more cruelty. So that leaves then another choice, which is if you want to engage, to engage with kindness, compassion, 
some constructive tools. By the way, compassion isn't the same as agreement, right? You can be compassionate towards someone you disagree with without agreeing with them. Um, by the way, the answer also isn't abandoning your core beliefs and values. I literally argue about politics for a living, so I am not saying that we should abandon our core beliefs and values, right? So here's what you do. The trick is ABC, if you want to try this at home. It works at work. <laughs> it works at you know Thanksgiving with your politically opposite uncle. It's very useful. This is a tool from Matt Kohut, John Neffinger, in their book, Compelling People, who, along with Seth Pendleton, their business colleague, taught this to me. And the A in ABC is not argue, obviously. I already made that point. The <laughs> A is affirm. So here's the thing about most of us, we like to think we like read all the information and arrived at our political opinions through like some, we did not, right? We feel this is right and that's wrong. And we just, what, how we feel. And here's the thing about feelings. You can't argue with feelings. They're not like facts. Feelings are valid simply by being felt, right? I've learned this from couples counseling. So. Uh, for instance, when my partner says, you hurt my feelings, it turns out I cannot say, no, I did not. <laughs> Are you going to tell us how long I mean, it took you to get there? I mean, so much time and money. Uh, I mean, I can say it, right? But it won't work because she'll be pissed. So you can't just, they're her feelings. You can't argue with them, right? So instead affirm which is to find something, usually a feeling, an emotion, that you can authentically understand. Let me give another example. People talk about being afraid of terrorism, right? And when they talk about, even when they talk about being afraid of, you know, terrorism by Muslim extremists. Look, three quarters of mass violent attacks since 9-11 were committed by white right-wing extremists. But the media covers violent acts by violent Muslim extremists four times more. Now again, to our point, leaders versus followers, what's the natural consequence of that? People are going to have a fear of terrorism by Muslim extremists. I can think that fear is irrational. I, in fact, do. But that doesn't mean they don't feel it. So if I say you shouldn't feel that, or you're wrong, or you're right, or you're right, guess what? I'm telling that person they are invalid because that's how they feel. And I can't change their feelings. It's their feelings. And, I, and no one wants to feel invalidated right at that core level. So I worry about, I, I feel scared too. I am scared too. That is true. I'm scared. Maybe I'm not scared, but like, what's the piece? I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about, you know, losing my job. I'm worried about whatever, right? Affirm. The B is not but, because again, <laughs> from couples counseling, <clears throat> it turns out if I say, I'm sorry, but, <laughs> means I wasn't sorry at all. Believe it or not, everything before the but, you're just saying this is a heap of lies. So uh, by the way, it's also not however, which is the Harvard of buts. No fancy buts. <laughs> so the B is bridge. Like, that's why. Or And the good news is, or just and, right? Something that is a bridge, not that cancels out everything you said before that. Uh, and then the C is where you actually say what you originally thought you wanted to say in the book, your content, your convincing, your point, right? But the point is you've delivered in it in a way. You've delivered it in a way that someone else can hear, right? And where, get this, it's magic when you do it, where they don't think you're arguing with them. They, they see you are emphasizing your connection, your common thread, right? Remember, meet people where they're at, don't leave them there.
right? So you are taking them on a conversation, on a conversational journey to a different set of conclusions. You're saying, yeah, I hear your feelings. I get those feelings. I have those same feelings too. I draw this conclusion. I believe this with them. I do, right? That's why I think we need this, and we, right? That's why I think we should have gun pol safe gun policy, blah, 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 right? ABC. You're welcome. Give it a try. <laughs> Tell me how it works. It does work in workplaces. It does work with your children. And yes, it does work with your loved ones, too. Uh, I just saved you all. Like, I don't know what the going rate for couples counselors is here. <laughs> but, you know. What is the most rewarding conversation you've had using that technique? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, I don't. Boy, that's a fantastic question. I'm not even sure I could count. Right? I mean, it really is when you can catch yourself. Right. And, and like my instinct, I, I go right, you know, I still, I'll be like, that's not right. That's not right. You know, you go right to the argument. Um, especially if you feel like your core values, your core belief, or even you are attacked. Um, but so many times when, you know, it's especially when I was on Fox, but even on, on CNN, where you, you're the expectation of the person you're talking to. And even the audience at home is, well, they said this, so now she's going to say that, and we're going to, right? And I'm not really listening anymore. I'm just watching the fight, right? And what it also, what also works about it is that then people catch, right? They catch it. They actually start paying. They notice it's different, and they're listening. So I have had, I will tell you, I've had conversations on Fox News, uh, whether it was about gay rights or abortion rights, where yes, the hate mail is atrocious and intense and voluminous. And when I have done this, I get notes saying, you made a good point. I appreciate your honesty on that. I appreciate your, right? Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing. This is awesome. In my experience, again, it's not for everyone. That's why I'm here for you folks. But if, if you are generous to others, then they will be generous to you. So if I can see in others that they do not want to be the worst thing that they've ever said, done, or thought, then they have the opportunity, the invitation to then be generous to me in listening, trying to hear my perspective, trying to affirm where I'm coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Get some audience questions. Oh, hey, audience. If all people are essentially the same, how have we come up with so very different party policies? In other words, is there a difference between a Republican and a Democrat? Yeah, of course there's a difference. I mean, not, listen, what there isn't is, right? Here's the difference. And in the book I talk about, someone uses the metaphor that I found incredibly helpful, the difference between um, hardware and software, right? So I was desperate to find evidence that we are not wired as human beings to hate. It turns out we are wired as human beings to hate. That's right. So once upon a time when we were sitting around our rudimentary fire, banging our rocks together, and some other rock banging tribe came up over the hill and you and I saw them and we were like, ah, that's, we don't know who they are. We're afraid of them. Like that evolutionary, you know, thousands of years later, we have a brain that tends to prefer our own and fear the other or the unknown. Sorry to tell you. We also have, by the way, a profound and deeply wired capacity for compassion and connection and cooperation. That's also true. But we do have this little system that is wired for hate. That, however, is the hardware. Like the base hardware, like you picked it up on the computer and the, right, you went and you got the 
but the software is who we hate. And that is not, that is not wired into our brains. So there's not some, you know, neuron that makes us a Democrat and hate Republicans or racist or misogynistic or that is not, that is the software. That is what society has taught us and our history and our habits encoded into our hardware. But that also means it can change. That also means it can change. I was really surprised to find out that not only in the one case that you profile, but apparently, again, with science and statistics behind it, people get attracted to white supremacist groups, not out of some innate hateful racism. They're looking for companionship. They're looking for acceptance. They're oddballs who are groomed, you know, come join us. We're your people. We're your family. That's the primary attraction. Yeah, that's actually, by the way, also true with terrorists. So if you talk to terrorist recruiters, when they are recruiting people, they are not primarily looking for the ideology, but the sense of isolation that can be solved through belonging. How the researchers describe it is that you come first looking for a sense of belonging and you slide into, phrase they use a slide, you slide into the ideology and the ideology becomes more pronounced as sort of part of the bonding, right? That then the group cements its bonds through hate. I will say, in the case of the ex-white supremacist, on the one hand, of course, that's deeply disturbing because we don't want to think that that's... On the other hand, like, if you stop and think about it for a second and you stop looking for the causality in his childhood or in his town or whatever, you realize it was a few wrong turns and a few circumstantial whatever that, like, he was into punk music and then found white power punk music and, right? But at the end of the day, if you're raised white in America, given our history and given our current reality... We have very potently still a overarching ideology of white supremacy in this country. Mm-hmm. He has it, I have it. We like to think that the, that the people who we are against or what, whoever it is, that they are some extreme aberrant example. And the, on the one hand, disturbing reality is they're not. On the other hand, the encouraging reality is they're not. Because that then also means they can change. You're a mom. Do you see any power that you have as a parent raising your child to make her less likely to say, I'm looking for companionship, I'm going to go hang out with racists? Well, first of all, it is worth noting that we as humans bond over hate. And there's studies, for instance, that that you will bond more quickly over mutual dislikes than likes. So it is it is just a phenomenon that we tend to bond over hate in general, right? Um, and again... You could say, oh, that's so horrible. Who would do that? And then I'm just going to evoke for you. You can silently raise your hands if this applies to you or not. But I will say that since 2016, I have been at several a party or event where it is undoubtable that the group is bonding over hating Trump supporters and hating Trump. Not even just hating Trump, which is its own little, but like hating Trump support, right? That is a Right? Where you sit around, I can't believe that I can't believe, right? We bond over that. So you all, there's too many heads shaking out here. And by the way, we also do this thing where, you're going to feel this one too, where we go and we say, I've been at dinner party after dinner party and my white liberal friends and my white liberal bubble and they say, or just my liberal friends in general, they say, oh my God, those Trump supporters, they're so Islamophobic and they're so racist and they're so anti-immigrant and they're so hateful. And I hate them. (laughs) And look, I don't actually think both sides do it equally, right? Just like when it comes to any sort of dynamic of hate, misogyny, I do not think it's like, right? That's not, 
I also think, listen, I'm a progressive. I want our side to do better. Mm -hmm. Right. And going back to the point I made before, if I, I'm a progressive because I believe, and I say this, like I espouse this, this is my principles. I'm like, I believe in the equal humanity and dignity of all people. I believe in the equal humanity and dignity of all people. So the question is, do I mean all people? And do I even mean people who I feel deny my equality and humanity? That's, that's where it gets hard. Sally Cohn, her book is The Opposite of Hate. You can find the rest in the podcast archive at indeepradio.com. What those extreme examples mean for the liberal conservative divide, the democratic republican divide, I don't know. I don't know. But it's food for thought. So I brought it to you here on the broadcast. And that is a wrap for this episode of the broadcast. Brad and Desi are here for the next go-round. I will be back very soon. And as always, good luck, world. Good luck, world.